Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Hello, you're listening to the Luck on Sunday podcast featuring the best bits from this week's show. On the show this week, Gérald Mosset, the star French jockey now based in Great Britain, 51 years young and with nearly 2,500 winners to his name. Paul Mulrennan making his return from injury in the new year in Racing UK Ambassador. And Graham Bradley, the wayward lad himself, discussing what might be the next chapter of his extraordinarily storied career. James Willoughby is my guest throughout this week's show. And James, an awful lot to look forward to. Absolutely. It's a fascinating thing to discuss with these various jockeys about their careers, where they were uh, and where they might be. As far as Graham Bradley's concerned, at a, another crossroads. He wants a, a return to, to racing in a more a more meaningful and official role. That, of course, will be up to the British Horse Racing Authority. How do you rate his chances? He's contrite, he's saying all the right things, but the most important thing is, will he be able to do all the right things? Really, only by building up an unblemished record over a period of time will he ever go some way to righting the wrongs of the past. But to do that, he's going to require that the BHA allow him to operate in an official capacity within racing. That's quite a mountain to climb. An intense and exclusive interview with Graham Bradley coming up on this week's podcast. Gerald Mosse, an incredibly engaging guest, always, and a man who's had an amazing career spanning several countries, continents, and riding winners at the top level just about everywhere. But his enthusiasm for the sport, and for horses in particular, remains undimmed. Now he rides like uh, a really intelligent jockey and talks like that too. He's extremely lucid. He's got amazing experience all around the world. And to listen to him, well, I feel you always learn something. Um, he likes to talk as well, which helps. And there's a ton of stuff to take out of anything he, he has to say. And to debate the Arc de Triomphe with him, looking at it from your point of view as a data analyst and his point of view as a man who rode in the race is well worth hearing again. Uh, with all jockeys, I think there's something uh, to be gleaned for the data analyst. It's important that we're objective, that we start with evidence such as sectional times and the like, but also the jockey's point of view, the first per person witness, if you will, well, that's very valuable. And Gerard rode in the arc. He's rode in many great races around the world. He knows what it's like. He's been there and done it. And for that reason, I and many other people will always want to listen to him. But as always, the first section of Luck on Sunday is devoted to analyzing and reflecting upon the stories, both equine and human, from the previous week and particularly the previous day and we were gifted a lovely performance to talk about from the very exciting Two Darn Hot. It was a wonderful day's racing and in Two Darn Hot we have seen an equine superstar strut his stuff on the Roly Mile. We're counting the days down to his reappearance there in the spring for the 2000 guineas. Surely his date with destiny. 
So that is where we begin this week's Luck on Sunday podcast. And it's great to have you with us. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. Well, you mentioned Frankie Dottori. It was a great day for him again yesterday. What an extraordinary season it's been for him, even by his own high standards, and for John Gosden. Remarkably, it was a first victory in the Dali Dewhurst for both of them on two darn hot. A horse who is named portentously, and he's living up to that name. And it, the final part of this Dewhurst, James, was superbly impressive, but there, were, there was any amount of things to comment on through the running of it. I have no hesitation in saying this is one of the best horses I've ever seen. Um, I, I think he is unbelievably good. And why I say that is for two reasons here. First of all, this is exceptional form, clearly. Um, he is a very good horse. We already knew that from his previous exploits, but the second and third horses here have already got very big figures. Um, and they drew clear, but what I, what I think really meant the most to me watching this race was the fact that normally wins like this, the prelude for them is a race where the pace collapses, where the horse jumps out the stalls and finds a position and settles nicely, and where he's seasoned enough and he's au fait with the conditions enough that he always travels well. But this horse, loads went wrong for him. He jumped really cleanly, cleanly and fast because basically he's one of the most fast twitch horses I've ever seen and he just gets into the bridle so quickly that gave Frankie a problem it took him half the race to wrangle him back into a spot where he wanted to be in the first place then he had to be hooked out at exactly the wrong part of the race the hottest part of the race just as they were accelerating in front of him and basically those two horses to his left hand side are very very good horses I think the third horse will win the derby next year and he ran them down in cold blood in the space of a furlong. I mean, to me, he's an exceptional horse. And that last hundred yards, Paul, was so unusual, just visually so unusual to see, having worked quite hard to get there, for him to then scamper away and finish full of running. Yeah, I think as James touched on it, it was a, it was a strong field, the form looks rock solid. That was his biggest test though yesterday, the ground was very quick. Yeah. New Market's a very undulating track, he'd have learnt a lot there yesterday. Yeah. He jumped very well, but as you see Frankie just reined him back, got a nice bit of cover, but then he got him into a nice rhythm. Sort of hit a bit of a flat spot about a furlong out, but then once he met the rising ground and Frankie gave him two little flicks, you know, he really accelerated and, you know, he looks the real deal. And John Gosling was saying beforehand, and I think this was reasonable, he said the side didn't like fast ground, yeah, yeah. the dam didn't like fast ground, it was really slick, it was hot, there was a warm wind, and he coped with it okay. He called it spot on beforehand, yeah, and um, if you're to believe his post-race assessment as well, he knew the, he got the tri-cast. Um, and, yeah, I think, I think what he said was, was dead right, and I think this is a horse who... I mean, this, this horse is now going to be rated nearly 130 from a race where things didn't go well for him. It's insane. Um, and when he matures and seasons, he'll get better in terms of his racing character. He'll have derived something, as Paul says, from this race. He, the one problem is John Gosden's record in the 2000 Guineas, I think, is getting horses to, to come to hand. It's not really his natural game, is it? He's more of a trainer that likes to work his horses into mm. the season. We saw that this year with Roaring Line, for example. But then I suppose you could argue that he hadn't won a Dewhurst before because he wasn't pushing his two-year-olds. And he said this horse was so natural, so yeah. naturally precocious, he'd just come and come and come, and that's why he found himself there. Yeah, I mean, it does come early in the year, and as you said, John Gosling, yeah. he's not one to rush his horses early on, but it does look to me he's got a lot of speed, this horse. Oh, absolutely. He's got a, yeah. a lot of natural speed. I'm sure he, he, you could drag him back a furlong as well, you know? I don't want to use the F word too early, but Frankel was, <laughs> <laughs> Frankel was a horse who, when you watched him in his races, he looked like a different breed of cat. He wasn't subject to the same limitations physically of the horses. You know, he would 
he would go off too fast, like in the Guineas, and still keep going. Or he would be in a situation like in the Queen Anne, where he used an extraordinary amount of energy in the wrong part of the race and widened at the end of the race anyway. And this horse, he seems to have a bit of that to him. You know, that last furlong, as you indicated. You know, you get the close-up. I think the racing post is really good. It, say, it says, it says uh, rider celebrating close home. <laughs> I like I th that. I think that's, that's notable. It's quite a good piece of writing, that, I think, in its way. And I think you can only do that when you get a real a real top feel from a horse can't you well if anyone knows it's frankie's yeah. won plenty of good horses and like i said to you i just think he winged the gates and frankie was really really wanted to make yeah. sure he yeah. educated him got him dropped in got all the cover and i think frankie knew what he had underneath him he never panicked just eased him out a couple of flicks he was very strong at the line mm. it's been an amazing story because this is a horse from a, a rich lineage out of dare me and a brother to Lati Dar and related to Somi Dar. It's been a, a wonderful success story for Lord and Lady Lloyd Webber from the foundation broodmare Durara, who was brought out of the Aga Khans many years ago. And uh, their racing manager, Simon Marsh, manager of Watership Down Stud, joins me on the line now. Simon, good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Nick. Would it be fair to say that after yesterday and the 3.6 million guinea sale of the brother earlier in the week, that this has been the best <laughs> week in, in Watership Down Stud's uh, <laughs> lifespan? Yeah, I know. It's been an absolutely incredible week, and um, and uh, you know, I don't know. I don't think we've ever ever experienced anything quite like this before. This horse is a little bit different, is he? Not just for the reasons that James and Paul have been saying, but he he seems to have outspeeded his pedigree in some respects. Yeah, I mean, Sandy Dar had a lot of speed actually, mm. um, but. Um, I, I think she was probably more ten furlong for the She really never actually showed her brilliance. I think she was a she was a, a group one filly in everything other than having won one. I mean, she should have won a group one, but um, she always showed a lot more speed. For instance, than Lati Dar, who seems to be a much more staying filly, mile and a half filly. Um, but no, he does ha seem to have extraordinary speed, and that's not to say he won't stay beyond a mile because obviously his first race at Sandown was over a mile so mm. I think as he develops he will probably stay further but he does have incredible speed. In, in your experience with your expertise with your knowledge of the pedigree with your knowledge of the horse physically when you see what he did yesterday do you genuinely believe that he's going to excel say at a mile and a quarter or a mile and a half or do you really believe that a mile is going to be his metier? I don't know. I think we'll have to see, obviously, next year when he matured from two to three and how he goes through the spring. But I have no reason to... I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have to see there would be any problem up to a mile and a quarter. Um, you know, he's galloping out in these races so well. Um, at Doncaster, I mean, it took Frankie about half a mile to pull him up. And yesterday, he, he galloped out way, way, way beyond the line. So I don't think there's any reason to believe he... He won't stay um, at least a mile and a quarter, but beyond that, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see. I mean, it's a happy accident that the Lloyd Webbers still own the horse, isn't it? Because he was going to go to the sales, a bit like his, his brother did this week. Yeah, we sell all the cults and we retain our fillies, and we've been very lucky over the years with the fillies like the Fugue and, and Dara Me herself and Crystal Music and others. And, um, but no, we would normally have, um, have, uh, have, have sold him, but he had a... He had an issue, a vet issue, which <clears throat> which meant he wouldn't have passed the vet at the sale. So we felt there was no point taking him, and um, and we retained him. I mean, this time last year, I can tell you, I was tearing my hair out because we were, hadn't been able to sell him. So it's all a bit of luck. 
Uh, well, and the Wheel of Fortune in that regard has turned full circle because the full brother, um, Dubawi, out of Diaremi, lot 325 at book one of Tattersall's <laughs> topped the sale at 3.675 million guineas. I apologise for depriving you of the 75,000 earlier <laughs> on, but what's that between friends? Um, we started here at, at 3 million guineas, Simon. What were you thinking at this point? Well, um, I don't understand the question. Well, we're just Sorry. picking it up now. You probably can't see, but we're just picking it up as the bidding has gone to over the three million guinea mark. What, what was in your mind at this moment? Well, I, don't, I mean, it's very difficult. Because once you get up to those kind of um, regions of, 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 of a horse making that kind of money, I mean, anything can happen. And I was, you know, obviously delighted that he um, was getting up to the levels that we, we, we hoped he would. But in an auction, you never know how much they're going to make. And you never know if there are two people who are going to want the horse um, that much. So, no, it was extremely um, nerve-wracking, to be honest with you. And can you compare the two horses as, as yearlings, as models? Are they similar? Um, I, what is very interesting about the pedigree and, um, and what seems to be going on is that she's um, throwing either to her mother or herself. So, like... Um, too darn hot, and uh, the yearling and Somi Dara very much like Dorara. Mm -hmm. Very much, she was a 15 3 mare, she wasn't a big mare, she was neat, she had a beautiful head and eye, very much like Darshan, who's her, um, with her half brother. And, um, and, um, Lati Dara is much more like, um, Dara and me. So it, it's interesting how they, she seems to be throwing to one or the other. Um, but they were obviously both very good mares, so it doesn't really matter. You mentioned Lati Dar. She's going to go to the Kipco British Champions fillies and mares at Ascot next weekend. How's she come out of that pretty gruelling race in the, in the St. Ledger? Um, well, John was absolutely delighted with it. He said to me the other day that he'd actually never known anything that he's run at the St. Ledger come out of it so well. So um, she was absolutely bouncing out of it. She's had a very good break. Um, I think that... Um, the weather um, at the moment looks like the, it won't be fast ground at Ascot. I think it'll probably hope to be good, good to soft ground, um, which should be all in her favour. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Equiwell Dubai. You certainly needed an awful lot further if you were going to win the half a million pounds yesterday in the Cesara, which in Willie Mullins has firmly identified uh, that pot. And as such, he showered the Cesara, which with seven runners and came up with the first and the second. Low Sun was the winner under a superb ride from Shamie Heffernan, and it was Uridel under Billy Lee who came home in second. And you can see Low Sun in the second Richie colours there, the sheepskin cheek pieces with the green cap, who's never too far away from the pace. By Champs-Élysées, loved the fast ground, really stayed well. Um, Willie Mullins is just going to have these horses, Paul, fitter than everybody else and probably better handicapped than everybody else. Yeah, but I suppose you touched on good prize money. They're fit. They're getting ready for a jumps campaign now. They stay very well. You know, fair play to him bringing them over here to England and, you know, getting a big pot. He's got seven in the Irish came in the Irish Sarawich today. I mean, he's got the favourite in that as well today, so he could end up winning that one as well today. It, it, the dominance that he's exerted over jump racing is one thing, James, but the dominance that he's threatening to exert over the biggest flat handicaps and indeed all the staying prizes with the bolstering of the staying a division is, is similarly notable. One could argue he's following a trend. I'm, just, I'm going to turn to my expert witness here and ask the question, is it the training and conditioning of these horses by National Hunt 
trainers, you know, are they training more for conditioning than the flat trainers who have to keep horses on the muscle and sharp? Is that what makes Nichols and Henderson and Mullins now really good in flat races over two miles? Well, I think as we just spoke, as I said 30 seconds ago about training horses to be quicker now. Yeah. I, I, I trend Willie Mullins, Paul Nichols, they'll train horses to be slow, to, right. to stay. Yeah. You know what I mean? We tend to... Well, the yard I'm with, Michael Dodds, we, we five, six, seven furlong horses, milers. So you're training them to, with speed, sharpness. I doubt them horses will be doing the same regime as what we're doing with ours. You know, they're trained to, to stay. You know, that horse there, he sat in the van all the way, he galloped all the way to the line. Stamina is the name of the game, isn't it? Right, so like, you could argue then, maybe there's like a, there's more a separating out of the two schools then that's going on. Well, let's ask the man who rode low sun. Shami Heffernan joins us on the line now. Norway was also the winner of the Zetland Stakes Forum yesterday. Shami, good morning. I know you haven't got too long. I won't keep you too long. But first of all, congratulations yesterday. Thanks very much, Norway. Uh, great result. Um, good day. Very good day. Let's talk about low sun first. We were talking about Willie Mullins. And I know the whole Mullins team was there yesterday. He was there. Ruby Walsh was there. David Casey, Katie Walsh. It is a, it's a massive team effort. And I know the instructions you were given were absolutely spot on. Yeah, exactly. Um, I had ridden the horse before, and uh, I spoke to Ruby and uh, Davy and, and Katie, and uh, you know they had told me what what, what position he would uh, favour getting into, and would be prominent if he could get into that position. He'd have a very very good chance. And at what point did you think, yeah, this horse has got all the attributes required to just keep going, keep rolling with me? Well, I'd watched these runs and I had listened to the lads saying that yeah, it took him a while to come to hand and he wasn't impressed at one stage and when he did say come to hand and win and he had never disappointed and he just kept improving. And that's exactly what he did. He just he kept pulling out that little bit more. He wears the cheek piece. Is, it, is, he, is he a slightly quirky horse? Um, I'd say the cheek pieces could have been just to give me a hand to get the trip myself. <laughs> How demanding is it to ride in a race like that relative to, to all the other big races you ride in? It's a tough race. It's a full two mile two to the start. One horse got loose going down. Um, like we, Basically, we, we pull up and walk down around the bend to give the horse and jockey a chance and just get them to relax. And you know, Then you have to canter another mile and a quarter to the start. It's pretty demanding and it's a true run race, a big gallop and they go hard and uh, it, it, it's a battle from a long way out. Yeah. Well, the man who was lucky enough to own the winner yesterday of the Cesaro, which is Rich Ritchie, who joins us on the line now. Rich, good morning. Morning, Nick. Yes. Uh, extremely well, and I would imagine you are as well, because th there was a, over £300,000 to the winner yesterday uh, of the Cesaro. Which, uh, uh, do you think that the, 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 the big money handicaps now on the flat are going to become as big a priority for you as, as winning races at Cheltenham and winning races at Punchestown? Oh, gosh, no. I mean, you know, it's wonderful to win. Don't get me wrong. And we've had an unbelievable summer um, on the flat. But our, our, first, our first love really is, um, is the jump game. We buy horses to jump. Um, sometimes they turn out to be dual purpose. Sometimes they can't jump. So we try them on the flat. This fellow yesterday, though, can do both. And um, it, was, uh, it was very exciting. But, no, for us, we're, we're, we're jumping people, and that'll continue to be our priority. But w while these handicaps continue to sort of present themselves, we'll, we'll, if we've got the horses, we'll certainly pursue them because it's wonderful. The prize money is sensational. Uh, and going into yesterday, Willie had seven in the race. You were multiply represented. Was Low Sun the one that you personally were putting your hopes on? Yes, I was. There'd been, he'd been talked about um, uh, good work all week. I thought we had the triple whammy kiss of death when um, Mrs. Keeley, Seagal, and Delamere all tipped him yesterday, <laughs> as well as time for him. But um, it, was, uh, it, was, it was 
look, he was the one I think that had the progressive profile. Limity was disappointing yesterday. I, I thought she'd run a better race than she did. Maybe that ground was just too quick. But um, no, Losun was the one I think we were all hoping would do the business. And the one I was worried about was Yerodel, who ran a storming right. race for Luke McMahon and Woody. And when you're targeting these big handicaps, what, what feel do you get back from, from Willie Mullins about the sort of horses that are required to, to do well on the, on the flat in these big staying races, perhaps as distinct from some of the good horses that you've had that are winning races at the Cheltenham Festival, for example? Yeah, I think, I think sometimes when you, when you see the, the breeding of some of these horses, and then if you go back, they may have quite a bit of flat breeding in them. I mean, Losun was, was a relatively inexpensive purchase, and you know, he came from the flat, but had some national... Uh, hunt pedigree in him, um, but when we look at those, we, we do occasionally buy a horse that we say, okay, if he can't jump, you know, he could be a good dual-purpose horse. A good example of that is Thomas Hobson, who just didn't like jumping. Um, we thought he might, he, we knew he would stay, we thought he might be able to jump. So I, I guess it probably starts with when we're buying the horses, you know, occasionally we do look for horses that may have some salvation on the on the flat if they can't, uh, if they can't jump, but after that, really, it's, it's about what they show us on the gallop and, um, and in their races. And, you know, I, one I think that could be one of those type of horses is a horse like Salier, who I have hyped, hoped for this um, national hunt season, but he could be one that could go back to the flat in time as well, like Lemony did. That's Salier. You mentioned uh, your, your national hunt string. Is it a string that is going to grow this year, roughly stay the same sort of size? How, how busy have you been in the summer? We've been busy both, um, both buying but also um, exiting. You know, one of the things that I, I talked to Willie about last year was is, is a lot like Jigginstown and other of big owners, you know, you, you, you've got to get into the habit of going to these sales and, and selling horses that the buyers want. And traditionally, either we held on for horses for too long, um, which is probably both of our fault. You know, Woody thinks he can train a winner in, in, out of anything. <laughs> he does most of the time. And, you know, you hate to see a horse first when you have to do well. But, um, you know, that, that there are horses that, that can perform well that just don't suit what we want. And so, yeah, we've been busy. We've been very active, um, you know, in, in, the, in the transfer market, if you will. But we've also sold a few. So I think the string will be down probably about 10%, but that's only because we've exited some or retired some old heroes. And, um, but we've been very active, per usual, um, buying horses. We've already bought, I think, four or five for next year. So it's a never-ending hunt and battle, and it's very competitive. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel, Dubai. Welcome back. My next guest has had a career that has spanned three decades and he has ridden for some of the best, from Patrick Biancone through Francois Boutin to his tenure as stable jockey to the Yaga Khan to riding nearly 500 winners in Hong Kong. He has had a remarkable international career, but now he has brought his tack to Great Britain where he's made the sort of impression you might have expected, but one that has confounded a lot of observers because they felt that he should be getting more rides more quickly. But now everyone's figured out that there is a true international star in our firmament and he is available to anyone on a daily basis and he is riding at just about every track in the country including three rides at Goodwood this afternoon. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Luck on Sunday studio Gerald Mosse. Good morning. Good morning. And great to see you and I suppose the obvious question is why do we find you here on, uh, on a Sunday morning in Britain at uh, this time of the year when you've had this glorious international career? What is, what is Great Britain doing for Gerald Mosse? I think when you really feel comfortable with what you do and you enjoy what you do and physically and mentally you can still do it, I don't see anything will stop me to carry on my, my hobby. It's kind of a pleasure to be on the horse from morning to the night. So people was a bit surprised to be coming here riding all day long. But I feel then 
I'm probably born to do that, and uh, this is what I like it. You've been around the world and ridden in some of the, the toughest riding groups anyway. You, you had the job for the Aga Khan. You rode for great trainers like Francois Boutin. You rode in Hong Kong, which is as, as tough as anyway. Do you have a naturally adventurous spirit? Do you like to travel? I do like to travel. If not, if you don't really like to do that, it's impossible to carry on like this for that long period. Um, I think since my youngest age, I always think um, to ride best horses worldwide. When you get a chance and the privilege to sit on the good horse, um, competing worldwide against best horses, best track, best jockey, um, I think it's a dream job. So if you like competition and horses, I think it's nothing better than what I did. Where did it all start for Gerald Mosse? Well, this is quite uh, like yesterday. Uh, my, my father was a trainer in the south of France, and I used to always been in the yard, having horses around me, my, my pony. I even go to the school on my pony. So it was really being like... Um, I get in when I was maybe yeah, one years old, two years old, and I remember to having discussion with my dad and to say, well, I don't want to eat too much, I want to be a jockey. And the first present that I really request since I'm young, it was a pony uh, to make sure that I get my own one one. And I say, I want a black and white uh, Indian horse and something like this. So he said, oh, if we're going to win the, a big steeplechase this afternoon, uh, we're going to find one. So it was a surprise for me. Then next morning, horse win in the afternoon. I was really there, uh, enthusiastic to see the horse. The hope's gonna make it, and then he did. Right next morning, he said, "Okay, let's go to to find an Indian chief pony for you." And so we go somewhere. I don't remember close to the port in Marseille, and then he was in a tiny box, a black and white pony. Like I was very, very surprised and um, almost crying, being so happy about that. So you were ha so happy to have this pony. Uh, how how was the relationship between you and the and the and the black and white pony that, that you got? Was was this everything you expected? That was this was this a big part of your your development as a rider? To be very fair, fair <laughs> with you, I was asking something unbroken, like never been ridden. So I was too young, definitely. I was three and a half, and um, when they say, "Okay, now he's here, you can jump on him," then to be fair, I cried because I was scared. <laughs> but it was. Um, it was a great, great moment because I was driving and buying some stuff, like dress up, like really um, be able to enjoy and then to figure out how to ride. Of course, when you're two, three years old, you then, it put me probably on the horse before then I even start to walk. <laughs> so um, then it started to be like a part of the family. Um, I don't have a brother and sister. I was by myself. So I get my pony and we go for a couple of years together. And, and obviously built up a, a great rapport. Are you, are you always happiest when you're on the back of a horse? Are you happier on a horse than off it? I think I'm became, I become unhappy if I'm not be able to be on the horse. I think it's um, when, you have a, when you're passionate about something like that, um, I, everything's related with a horse could be a Western pleasure with different uh, uh, cross country or, or having a couple of days on a horse in Montana to discovery a, a beautiful mountain and everything. As far as I'm close to them, I feel comfortable. 
What was your what was your big break? What was the moment where you felt that race riding was not just a dream? It was a it was going to be a reality, and it would be a reality for the rest of your adult life. Well, the story started a bit long ago. I was coming, like I say, from South France, and my dad was pretty close to family of Biancon, and uh, he tell me, "Okay, what do you want to do?" I say, "Well, dad, I want to have a, a good career, and I want to be." to the capital, because in Marseille it was not very nice, and I learned there almost everything, but a different level. So when I say to my dad, I want to go to Paris, he say, okay, we're going to find a place to, for you to start, and then coming from South France, warm, be a little bit spoiled, um, I, then I don't know really in Paris what is going to be. Um, I say I want to join a school and I want to be there. So I start to go to Paris in November, and I believe then it was probably not the best move that I did because it's probably one of the coldest winter that we never had over there, and it was really freezing. Then I was thinking, wow, it's gonna be hard. My family is in South of France, I'm by myself, all winter in Paris, uh, in Chantilly, exactly. Then it was um, pretty tough, but I believe to to make your own character, to make your own personality. It teach, you have to go through difficulties to realize how good it is. And after all, many, all, all these years, I start to feel sometimes a little bit like emotional because when you go through all these years, uh, could be living in Hong Kong for almost 25 years, mm -hmm. uh, racing in France or all over the world, um, it, it's, it's a privilege to still be here and having the same uh, passion to do what I do. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. Uh, we're going to look back on last weekend's brilliant ARC weekend. And before we do, we're going to hear from John Gosden, who's been giving us an update on his ARC heroin enable off the back of, of what was a monumental day in Paris. So you haven't had actually time to, to really take it in, but when you do, I'm sure you're going to enjoy watching that back. Yeah, I think so. It's, uh, it, I, I, I think it was noted in the interview before the race that I had certain misgivings the wrong thing, but I had certain concerns, but it wasn't my business to say it. We were there, we were running, yeah. but they became apparent very much inside the last furlong that the filly had missed uh, her, main, her main piece of work and, yeah. and been off for a week in the middle between Kempton running at Kempton. So look, she did it despite not being 100%, fabulous run from the second, ruthless pace from the Ballet Doyle St. Ledger Capri and Kew Gardens. That was, it was a ruthless pace. It was a real test and she answered the call. I thought the jockey was absolutely brilliant, put his stick down and just hands and heels and picked her up over the line. That's maturity rather than panicking and doing too much of that. So look, it was an extraordinary achievement. It was more down to the filly than anything else. Yeah. You're not really meant to win, a, win an arc at 85%, but she did. So the great thing is, I think she might now be fit since the arc. Yeah, not yeah, a bad way yeah, to prep yeah. her for something no, bigger. No, a bit better. unusual, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> unusual. Is, is there going to be another run this year? Um, decision going to be made pretty well next week on that. We said 10 days, so I'd like all of the 10 days and then make a decision, uh, put everything through to Prince Khalid and he will decide. 
John Gosden talking about Enable and a decision on whether she will be going to the Breeders' Cup will be made in the next few days, but she's reported to come out of the race extremely well. Right, the arc then. Let's talk about it. Much has been debated this week about whether it was a fast pace, slow pace, whether Sea of Class was in the right place, the wrong place, good ride, bad ride. Enable, was she 85%? If she was, was she at her best? Did she need to be at her best? Gerald Marseille, you rode in the arc. You can answer some of those questions. Was it a strongly run race? Well, everybody have different opinion. In my opinion, we won't, we won't go that fast. Uh, the pace, they jump well, and then we just build up the race, but it never been really solid pace from the beginning. So really, where was the ideal place to be racing? I guess where Frankie Dottori was sitting. Exactly. If you get a horse, be able to be placed there and with not using yourself too much and not having a horse too keen, is the best scenario to be handy, cover, just wait for the time to press the button. And actually what Frankie do, he press the button at the right time, even if the, the mare getting tired the last 150 yards, he make the difference at the, three, at the 300, like a turn and a half. When he say, okay, it's time to go, she kick, she take two lengths, clear, and then she, she survive on these things. But after that, he's always someone finishing because I'm saving a lot of ground. She have to be there early on. And then, of course, the finish, the horse, the finish, finish strong from behind because she do absolutely nothing and he'd be very lucky to go through all the crowd and spring home you know the winning post is the only thing never move so you have to praise the right things the right moment the pressure on your horse to make sure then when you feel it's time to go it's time to go and I believe Frankie win the race there timing in right. short then James is everything I would like viewers to rewind on their Sky Plus and listen to Gerald's discussion there, analysis again. That was absolutely 100%. But where were you when I was getting killed on Twitter over and over again by people giving exactly the opposite? We've even heard John Golston say that it was a strongly run race there. But the facts are that it wasn't. And the facts are that, as Gerald said, with hyper accuracy, it was a magnificent piece of riding from Frankie de Tori. The best horse on the day did not win this race. We know that from the sectionals. We have the ability to measure the pace. We know that Sea of Class was too far back. And had she sat anywhere close to the pace, basic physics tells us she would have won by three lengths. This is from Simon Rowlands, my favourite analyst in all the wide world. This is from his Irish field column. And I've no affiliation to the Irish field, but if you don't subscribe to his column every week, you're an absolute maniac. It's by far the best thing in horse racing. And those are his figures. And I'll, I'll break those down for you, what they really mean there. The, the, the third column, just look at that third column, that is basically the percentage of the race speed the horse came home with. So that tells you, uh, just as Gerald said, that Enable was almost perfect fractions, like a, like a Sir Roger Bannister when he broke the four-minute mile, and that Sea of Class had to run extremely hard. She ran what's called negative splits in athletics. That is, she ran the second half of the race significantly faster than the first part of the race. And we know from basic physics that we got to the moon in 1969, although we haven't been back there since, or much, um, that, <laughs> that if she would have gone further forward, she wouldn't have lost that much energy. So she would have been able to buy those early lengths cheaply, and then, and then she would have been able to win quite easily at the end of the race. And this is what frustrates me about where Gerald's ridden in Hong Kong and Dubai where Paul's ridden, and, and they have the ability to objectify this analysis and it's about time we flipping well did, because all the hot air is a waste of time. Well, to, to be fair with you, it's always an impression, visual impression. But when you're on the horse, 
and you get a draw than he has, absolutely. he had absolutely no option than to have to come back and save ground and wait and hope the pace is going to be strong and we're help for the horse coming from behind. She's the only one making so much effort, but actually we cannot criticize his ride because he gave uh, probably 10 out of 10 uh, uh, performance to be able to come back. And if you think he's going to be closer and he will win easy, I'm not agree with you because if he go easy early on and he be handy, probably he will have less power to the end. Well, the physics doesn't say that, Gerald. It just doesn't say that. I mean, you, you could be right from your massive experience of riding horses, which I massively bow down to, but that's not what the numbers suggest. And there were three riders drawn outside him that raced in midfield, and they were on much less good horses. And they, you know, they would have, had she been ridden like them, subject to what you're saying, now take the point. It's not an argument about humans. We get obsessed with humans. It's horse racing. It's the horses we're on about. The number one job is to evaluate the horse. And in that race, Sea of Class was by far the best horse. But James, if James Doyle had have pressed the button, leaving the gate and kicked her up there, and he got stuck three, four wide, over racing, no cover, would she have overraced and maybe not finished? I don't know. The job of the analyst is to analyze the race, though. People are getting lost in the vilification. I'll refer you back to White Muzzle and Yutakatake. Mm. One of the most celebrated bad rides in history. He was sixth, beaten two and a half lengths, running on at one pace, just about. But, you know, on that case, and because of the identity, it's a person-centric thing. James Doyle is flavor of the month. That's why people leap to his defense. If it's a foreign rider, yourself included, you're one of us now, you've ridden so much here. But if it's someone <laughs> that I mean that we're not familiar with and we don't respect like we respect you, it's a different analysis. The whole thing's different. But the filly as well, it was the first time I think she was out of her own sex. I think it's the first time James ever had to pick the stick up on her. As you I know, say, I'm she not... Has I'm not to, she has to be yeah. ridden. The first furlong for me with that filly, what I've seen of her is the most important. You have to get her to yeah. switch off and relax and ride her for a turn of foot. So, I totally hear all those things. I think they're all very good points. I listen very yeah. closely is when people like yourself and Gerard talk. It's very important to listen to it. But mm. the other side of the argument, the objective facts, nobody, not you, not Gerard, not anybody who's, a, who's, who's got experience of riding, stopped to ask, what were the fractions? No one said it. Mm. And yet it's the most fundamentally important thing that there is. And without addressing that side of the argument, mm. it's just hot air. This is true. The fraction is probably the most important things and people not really realize. But at the same time, you have to understand if you let it go, getting closer, it will use petrol early on yep. and you won't be able to finish that speed, especially with a draw like that. Like we, I just hear traveling maybe three wide or four wide, no cover, having the filia on the bridle, definitely she will never hit the line that speed. And, and how certain are you of that? Because the physics is certain. How certain are you of that? Have you never ridden a horse that surprised you? Have you never thought to yourself, oh, that settled a bit better than I thought it well, would? Well, you can try. If you win, you're a hero. And if you get caught or if you get beat, you will be the most worst rider worldwide. It shouldn't be and about that, And people never say that. So mm. at the same time, yeah. you, it, it's not, we don't talk about this particular race or jockey. I talk in general. If you get a draw like this and you get a feeling like that with not too much experience, having a big ability. I ride myself in the morning, that filly, so I can tell you she's good. You don't take the risk. You cannot try something mm. in the arc. Yeah, you I have, get that. You have yeah. to really try to save ground, give the best He rode like the trainer wanted, her to, wanted him to. To make sure yeah. she would hit the line properly. He's definitely 
feeling worried right. in the fourth straight to say, God, they don't go fast enough. I'm sure that crosses his mind where I'm sh- going to go. He cannot go around everybody because it will be on that ground too much to do and will be at the same time in the bad ground because they used to move the fence. So it will, if you go too wide, you get up in the slower ground. In the slower ground. Yeah, it bakes. So you play. have yeah. to be patient, be patient, be patient, and then try to find out where the gap's going to be, how I'm going to press, how she's going to behave, how Terrific. she's going to react. Yep. You have to take your time to make sure that when she's on the line with a good strike, good balance, press the button. And fortunately, Frankie at that time already said, okay, it's done, I get a goal. You know, I get a, my, my, my marriage is still there, still plenty of, of her to react. Not traveling, having any effort, a mm. perfect race. Afterwards, you described it like that. You, I agreed with you. But Gerald, the thing is, we never really had the discussion. From the minute the race was finished, it was like a tidal wave of people saying what they wanted to say. And then that became the problem with the narrative like that is it becomes history. The, hist- the facts of the matter could be lost to history that the best horse did not win that race. That is a physical fact. You can talk about the, you can talk about the, the tactics or whether, what they should have done. I'm not interested in the people. It's horse racing. It's the horses that, that we should focus so this, on. This is an interesting point now. So I think we, we've, we've, we've actually reached consensus by, a, by, a, by debate insofar as what we're all saying, I think we're agreeing, is that the best horse on the day didn't win the race. The circumstances of the race dictated that the best horse on the day was. I've no problem with that at all. Was there, was there yeah. with a mountain to climb, and your sectional analysis confirms that. Yeah. What Gerald and, and Paul are saying is that this is, this is because yeah. of a certain set of circumstances, and we shouldn't be throwing the jockey under the bus for it. You're saying you don't care whether we throw the jockey under the bus for it or not. Want. Doesn't matter you're, to me. You're, yeah. you're saying it's a, it's a pure question of, of horse racing. Yeah, we need to do, we need to reach proper analysis first. I mean, that's in the jockey's favour, because you take Jamie Spencer, for example, a jockey who has been vilified throughout his career, to me, completely, un, completely unscientifically. The vast majority of his rides have not just been not bad, but have been very, very good. He's got, he's got inferior horses to finish closer than they ever would if they were kicked on two on, two furlongs out. And what depresses me slightly, uh, a lot, is that 20 years ago, it felt like we were in a different place to we are now. Now, because of social media and because everybody's got an opinion, that's great. I'm massively in favour of listening to people. People know that from my Twitter account. I listen to all comments and respond to them and as many as I can. But the problem is that everybody's opinion can't be weighted the same because some people's opinion, like Simon Rowland's, is factual based. Other people are just saying what they want to say or whether they like James Dole or not or whether, like you're saying, Gerald, about like, what your instincts are, mm. which, are which are massively valuable. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not denuding we, we, that at all. I'm sure Gerald will back me up here. Like, as a jockey, there's plenty of horses you ride, and you know if you don't get cover and relax in the first furlong, you will win nothing. That's totally what agree. I want to say. With it, they, I'm they you. Not you can win, make so. a different world. You can make a different race. Yeah. But the thing is, the fact is, with the draw he has, he do a massive job. We have to see the positive. I always see the positive thing. I never see the negative. The analyst Even doesn't have that. Re- you know, the analyst has got to say, say what they think. Well, that's the problem. No, no, it I doesn't make it popular, that. but you've got to say it. No, no, you have, you've got to say yeah. it. And I agree with that. We, we're here to talk about anything and, and how the quality of the horses, what we're all looking for, it's to see the best horse win. But with the circumstance, with the draw, with the ground, with the pace, it make a lot of different things. Okay. Afterwards, if, if, if you can make a different races, uh, 
definitely they where we have to see the full picture they are top horses worldwide quality mm. so today she win tomorrow maybe the other one will beat the, because the, if uh, uh, again if that i don't like to improve but the betting horse. market knows if that's the thing the betting market cares about if because the betting market doesn't put horses in prices according to the finish that they put them in the in the order according to what should have happened do you see what I mean? Yes. It's all right. You're right. You said earlier about this, that the winning post is all where it matters. Couldn't not agree more. I think it's really spot on what you said before. But that's not the way that the betting market works. And I think we, we need to, for the average person in this country now, to beat these massive syndicates who've got loads of data and have got people watching every race and marking horses up and down. They've got to understand that it's only access to that data is the only way they can compete. And that data has the answers in it. I will agree with the you. the eyes don't. The eyes mislead. That's what all, all science tells us. I know, and I'm, I'm agree with you. But switch, enable draw 16, and put the other filly in. How do you think the race is going to be? Everything's going to be With different. Frankie Dettori on board, I don't be on, be on enable from any draw. But again, she's a different type yeah. of filly enable. She can yeah. make the run and she can sit second, I know, third. but yeah. still you have to yeah. use a lot of petrol. Yeah, and if you petrol, use that yeah. petrol early on in the race, Definitely, is mathematic, is not me. Dalakani won from White, he wasn't a brilliant horse, was he? He's a good horse, but... Like, like we say, different quality of horses. Different ground. Draw, different ground, mm -hmm. so many things involved. No, you're quite you, right. You cannot change that. But anyway, what we see, it was a great show, it was a great race. Brilliant race, wasn't it? Brilliant race. Brilliant race. Okay, brilliant it always, one will win, one will be second, one will be a little bit Celebrate. more lucky than yeah. the other one, but the show in, in general, of course, in the gambling part, view analyst we we cannot really it's difficult to judge it's, it's probably my opinion is the hardest part to judge easy to say if you do this how you do that we should do this afterwards it's very easy but on that day with the pressure i tell you frankie is a good friend of mine it was very tense luck on sunday Proudly sponsored by Albasti Cruel Dubai. For anyone who grew up watching horse racing during the 1980s and the 1990s, my next guest was a, a pivotal figure. His artistry in the saddle and his undoubted popularity in the weighing room were only matched by his ability to court controversy and to make some um, serious errors of judgment along the way, errors of judgment that ultimately cost him five years, banned from the BHA, originally eight, reduced to five, on appeal for passing inside information to uh, a known criminal. He is, of course, Graham Bradley. Well, Graham Bradley, it's been an amazing career in many respects, a brilliantly successful career in the saddle, a career that's been blighted by, by controversy. Um, what's the next chapter? Is there a next chapter? Well, thank you very much for the invitation, Nick. It's a wonderful show that you've got. Um, the main, main problem I've got at the moment is my reputation. I need to um, rebuild people's trust and regain my reputation. Um, and hopefully then, you know, I really want to apologise to what I've done over the last few years. I was a very successful jockey. I rode a lot of big winners. I've got a lot of friends in racing. But I created some stupid, stupid mistakes and I want to apologise. I have apologised in the past, um, but I just need to regain the people's trust. And I want to get sort of like an official position back in racing, get back in with all my friends and, and step my career up again. It's been a, it's been a very interesting story. If, if you read everything that's happened to you, 
it's not straightforward either. It, it's complex because your emotions seem to have taken a roller coaster. At one moment quite contrite, the next moment quite bombastic, the next moment feeling victimized. Now you've had a period of time to, I suppose, reflect on all of that and an extended period of time. What, what do you feel about your own conduct, I suppose, professionally in that period from sort of 84 to, to 99? Uh, when, when I was 14 years old, I lost my mother to breast cancer and it was, it was really emotional for me. And it made me appreciate how important every day was every day in life. And I just, you know, I could never say goodbye to her again. I could never say goodnight. And it made me, it made me a different, different person. So every day I just wanted to fund the last line of my autobiography, live for today, tomorrow is promised no one. I just wanted to be a nice, fun, kind sort of a bloke. Um, and every day was, every day was okay. Um, I, I just, I just, you know, like I said before, some of the mistakes I've made has just been just been unbelievable, um, and I just want to apologise for it. But when did that realisation occur that they were mistakes? Because for a lot of time, and and particularly reading the chapter about your friendship with with Brian Wright in the book, uh, Brian Wright, a renowned uh, criminal um, and mastermind of one of the biggest cocaine smuggling rings in in Europe, um, you you staunchly defended your your friendship with him for a, whole, for a whole chapter in the book. Do you now perceive that which ultimately led to you being disqualified for, for five years? Do you now perceive that as a mistake? Absolutely, yes. When I, was, when I was young, um, I mean, I got introduced to Brian Wright. He used to go to the races a lot. A lot of people in racing knew him um, and I came very friendly with him. Um, but giving him the confidential privileged information that I did was just so, so wrong. At the time, I believed in myself a lot. I thought it was a very good judge. When a, a jockey rides a horse, he comes back and he tells the owners, the trainers, it wants a bit further, it wants a bit softer, it wants riding, holding up, or it wants to be going on, and things like that, you see. And that's what I was thinking, what confidential privileged information was. Um, I didn't work in the yards too much. All I did was sort of um, school and gallop horses. I didn't look after them. <clears throat> um, so at the time I was a bit naive, I was very stupid, I didn't think I was doing too much wrong, I was just going for nights out with him and meeting him at the, the nightclubs, going racing and meeting him after racing and things like that and telling him, oh I think this might win, I think this will love the ground, etc, etc. Um, but now, you know, the way it's affected my life and my mental stress has just been unbelievable. I'm just so guilty, so wrong, and like I've said before, I just need to apologise, it was a stupid thing to do. You know, the, the BHA, the integrity of the BHA, what they do now is very, very, very important. We are the second biggest sport in racing, I think, behind football, and the number of people that, that like watching racing is incredible. So they've got to keep the integrity and people's reputation, they've got to keep it really good, and like I said before at the time, I didn't think I was doing too much wrong, but I know now that it was, it was stupid. What I want to know is when did that realisation come about? When did you stop becoming the Graham Bradley who wrote this incredibly engaging but very controversial book with Steve Taylor back in 2001? After you'd retired with a forward by the champion jockey, when did you stop becoming the Graham Bradley that wrote this? And when did you start becoming the Graham Bradley that's sitting here now saying, I'm really sorry, actually, a lot of what I said in here, I now don't believe in. Where was that? Well, quite, quite a few years ago. Um, Quite a few years ago. You know, I was, I was 40 years old when I retired from riding um, and I had to keep an involvement in racing. 
I bought a horse called Vicious Circle for a friend of mine, mm -hmm. David Metcalf. That they won, won the Ebor. That, that won the Ebor. Um, and I got a really good business going. Um, and that made me, I mean, I had, uh, everything was going absolutely wonderful. I was buying some really good horses. And it was round about then, so you're talking um, at least 10 years ago that I realised I'd made some stupid, stupid mm. mistakes. When I sort of like applied to be, I got me, did all my trainers modules and wanted to be a trainer in the end. Um, the BHA knew then that the press and the public didn't trust me. Um, so I had to start working on it. It was very emotional, it was upsetting. Um, but it really did make me appreciate some of the stupid, stupid things that I'd done. But even as recently as 2014, you were saying that you were feeling victimised by the BHA. No, but I totally understand this. I really do. Um, you know, I wanted to rebuild my life, rebuild my career. I wanted to look after the wife and daughter. Um, just want to get really get back into racing. I mean, I go to Royal Ascot every year in the owners and trainers car park before and after racing. Everybody I seem to meet, I get on well with everybody. I go to Dubai, I go to Cheltenham, Aintree, I meet everybody. But the, generally the racing public who don't know me think that um, they just don't trust me. So I've just been trying to work and work and work. So I'm getting it back. Through the last week I was going through your, your life and career and I remember all the, well, most of the, of the high points in the saddle. The brilliant ride on Morley Street, Collier Bay, you got the ride because you didn't get out of bed on time with, <laughs> yeah. with Alderbrook. The many brilliant rides for the Dickinsons, the Gold Cup win on Bragorn, but also could produce readily a dossier of quotes and citations from people within the sport, people that you've worked for, and people who administ administer the sport that would make you the last candidate worthy of any position in horse racing I could possibly imagine. And in your book, and in the first chapter of the book, is entitled Never Get Caught, and through the book runs a thread where essentially you're, you're resenting authority. Are you now saying you don't resent the authority of the BHA? I totally, totally appreciate the Jockey Club, the BHA, what they do for racing, it's absolutely incredible. But I was just a friendly, ongoing sportsman, I didn't think I was doing a lot wrong, but I do appreciate now what I did wrong. It was just stupid, I was young, I was just immature. Um, and I'm, you know, I can't really explain it that, um, you, you know, your life, I've, I ruined my own life. It's just, it's totally, totally my fault. I have written to the BHA, I've sent them emails, I've tried to apologise. Um, but I needed to come and chat to you in a show like this and apologise to the racing public. Because um, I'm 58 years old now, my life has changed. Um, the things I wrote in my book, it took me six months to write it. The chap I wrote it with, Steve Taylor, was absolutely brilliant. He chose all the, the character, the um, chapters, headlines and things like that. Um, but it's, I mean, it was in the Sunday Times bestsellers list for eight weeks or something. It was. Um, but you're not, you're not now. You're not throwing Steve under the bus no, here. No, for, no, no, absolutely no. He, he, he was, no. A, he was a big help. Um, but the the chapter about a chapter about Brian Wright. I mean, I didn't. He's got lots of friends in racing. We didn't know what he was doing. Um, but it's, it's, it's caused a lot of problems since. It's compromised a lot of people, you see. But we didn't know at the time. When I wrote that book, I didn't think he was guilty. But he did get found guilty, which is very unfortunate. Um, but I just wanted, you know, I'd retired from racing. I wanted to let people know exactly what I'd done, all the big winners at the road, all the funny stories, etc., etc., etc. 
So, and it sold very well, it was very popular. Um, but I didn't mean to, yeah, I've got a different, a different opinion now than what it was when I wrote it in 2000, 18 years ago. I've been retired from riding 18 years ago. Well, you definitely didn't mean to perjure yourself in your own book, which is what, you, which is what essentially you ended up doing. Uh, just one example, I'm trying to sort of tap into the psychology a little bit. In your book, you recount a story that on one level is quite funny and on, a, on another level is incredibly sinister. And it's the story about when Brian Wright had the last leg of his treble on Forgive and Forget to win the 1987 Gold Cup, a race in which you were riding Old Wayward Lad, the, the title of your book. Yep. And you were making an attempt with some other jockeys to get the race delayed they, or, or stopped, abandoned, because it was snowing and everyone remembers the thinker won it and you were shouting at the start of the, the snows balling up in the horse's feet. And you know, On one level, it's a, it's a funny story. As I said, on another level, it's an incredibly sinister story. You are trying through connections with a known criminal to... Um, influence the outcome of the of the most the most famous weight rage steeplechase in in the world and one of the most prestigious prizes in the world but there's a bit of you in the book that 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 has the bravado to to sort of think that it's it, it's a good story and people will warm to it and laugh at it and i'm sure plenty of people did but there's a bit of you that must surely now think what on earth was i thinking absolutely stupid 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 we wanted the book to be entertaining I didn't want the horse race to be run because of all the snow and the ground had come up soft and Wayward Lad wouldn't get the, the trip on soft ground. But to say what I did in the book, I mean, we did, I did have a, just a fun thing um, about Brian Wright. It, it wasn't totally 100% true. I didn't want the race to be run because the ground was too soft. That was the main thing. But writing the book was entertainment and trying to produce, so it was a stupid, stupid, stupid thing to do. So. I think what you're saying to me is that you're, you're just eager to entertain people, make people laugh. You want to please people all the time, even if it means that you are telling lies, telling falsehoods. You, you're, more, you're more interested in, in pleasing people than you are maintaining the integrity that was expected of you as a rider. Well, my life was fun. I think I was a, a very, very good jockey. I rode for a lot of top trainers, rode a lot of big winners. Um, and I just wanted to win, win, win. I didn't want to do anything stupidly wrong but like I said to you before I just I did make some some daft mistakes. Graham are you definitely not going to apply for your trainer's license again? Um, 58 years old I did apply for it a few years ago I don't know whether it's you know you need a lot of big owners a few years ago I did get promised some nice horses from if I, if I did get my trainer's license um, but I'm thinking now realistically the, the probably the best thing to do would be to would be just to get a a livery yard or something, pre-training, um, do a lot of buying and selling again, try to get my clients back. But like I said to you before, my I need to get my reputation back and I need to try and get the racing public to trust me. Even the, you know, some of the, the, the press have, uh, have been fairly harsh on me. So probably that's, that's what I would like to do, but I just want, I just want to, you know, when I, when I got suspended, warned off for the five years, a lot of my very, very close friends were told they couldn't even speak to me. I couldn't do anything to do with a racehorse. Um, and the five years was a long, 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 long time. So I'd like to just get back into racing, an official position. I've been offered a couple of jobs. Um, I'm just keeping my fingers crossed. I mean, I'm hoping this um, interview with you will help us a little bit. Do you, think, do, do, you, do you think you can understand the difference between people liking you 
and people trusting you? I, I didn't, but... You were, a very, you were a very popular member of the weighing room. Absolutely. There's a lot of people in the industry who clearly are very fond of you, but there is a huge portion of the racing public who completely understandably, because they read this and they read all the literature on you, who would never conceive of giving you any position in racing, however much of a, a good bloke they, they think or know you are. I know it's a very, very difficult position that I'm in. How I'm gonna, how I'm gonna sort it out, I really don't know. Um, but I would just like to be given a chance, just to redeem my reputation. What is what is daily life like now for for Graham Bradley? Uh, like I said to you before, I still go to the big race meetings and things like that. I play a bit of golf with a few of my friends, um, but it's difficult. Um, I've applied to be a trainer, I've applied to be a couple of assistants and I totally understand why the BHA won't let me do it at the moment. So I'm just working, working, working on trying to regain people's trust and rebuild my reputation. So you're just going back to it's, the time... It's hard. Just going back to the timeline again at the beginning of the interview, we were saying, you know, when, it, when did this change take place? You know, when did this change within you take place? And you were saying, well, it's, it's been happening for you know, the last decade, decade, decade and a half or so, but... Your most recent, so most significant brush with the BHA came when you and you were acquitted with 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 Brendan Powell of, of of training under under somebody else's name when you hadn't you hadn't been given a license. But in the in the the findings, the BHA said that we find that Graham Bradley is consistently someone who is still pushing the boundaries, and that's as recent as three or four years ago. So do you think do you think since then that you've you've taken a different approach? Have you recalibrated the way that you, you think about it? Absolutely, I've read exactly what they thought, what they've said. Um, I didn't agree totally with 100% of it, but I agree totally that, that it was a wrong thing to do. And you've just got to change, and you've, you, you just can't break the rules in racing. You've got to be an honest, genuine, hard-working person. Um, so that's what I've got to do. Do you, think, do you think you're a natural rule breaker or rule bender? No, definitely not. Um, but I have done. I've just been naive, stupid. Um, you live and learn. You get older. Um, it's not easy. Tell me about the culture of riding at the top level in the weighing room in the, in particularly the 80s and, and then in the 90s. Because I, I will say it again, and I, I mean it. This is a very entertaining book. <laughs> It might have got you into a whole world of trouble, and deservedly so, but it is a very understandable. Do you think there was something about the culture of the time, of the moment, that encouraged a lifestyle that could get you into more, more trouble? I'm not giving you a getter. I'm not, exon I'm not exonerating you. I'm just asking you the question about the culture at the time. I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a lot of years ago. Sport has changed over the last 20 years. Football, cricket, rugby, you know, we used to, when I won the... Champion early in 1996, Tuesday night we went to a hotel, we had dinner. Ali McCoy, Andy Gore, and there was about 20 of us, we had a few drinks. You know, jockeys aren't allowed to drink anymore. Um, so, you know, things have changed a lot. They're racing seven days of the week, 365 days of the year. We used to have June and July off every summer and go to Barbados and Hollis and things like that. You know, the whole, the whole thing in racing has totally changed. But when you were a jockey, um, you just had to, you just needed confidence you needed sensibility you needed you needed to ride good horses um, how it's changed over the last 25 years it's just totally different 
Was it a glamorous lifestyle then? Uh, it, was, it was incredible, yeah. I knew lots of people. You get invited here, there and everywhere. It's a wonderful way to earn a living. I'm from a council house family in Yorkshire. My father trained a few winners, but riding for the British jockeys team, riding Gold Cup winners, champion hurdle winners, King George winners, Italian champion hurdle winners, the, the, the owners that I rode for. Um, going out to France and riding for the Lloyd Webbers. And it's just absolutely incredible. My lifestyle has been brilliant. And I didn't realise I was doing a lot of stupid things wrong. But, I, but now I do, and I just appreciate what I did. Is that because you were so wrapped up in the moment and wrapped up in the adrenaline and the, and the fun of it? It was just, it was just an every, everyday life. It was just fun, riding winners, being interviewed on the television, um, going to parties, that's just, that's just the way it was in sport, yeah. Judgment is, is key, and uh, I think everyone in, in life, unless they're some kind of saint, will, will make bad decisions. But it was essentially your errors of judgment about people's character that, that was your undoing. Do you think you are a, a better judge of character now? Um, and if so, how can you, how can you convey that properly? I don't really know. I'm sure that I am a better judge of character now, yeah, and I know the rules. In, and I never used to read the rules and regulations and things like that. Um, you know, one of the main problems when I first started off was I went to Cartmel Racecourse and I had 50 quid on a two-to-one mm. on-shot, 125. It was just absolutely stupid. My last ride before I got the two-month suspension, I won the Hennessy Gold Cup on Brigorn. I was conditional champion jockey. Um, the year before, 1981, 82. So to go and have a bet on a public race I mean, I, I did see people do it up north years and years and years ago, but for me to do it, being in that position was just mind-bogglingly stupid. I don't know why I did it. But you live and learn. And now, just things have, have changed. Do you think the, the culture has changed significantly in terms of how jockeys conduct themselves and how they um, fraternise with people that perhaps they oughtn't to be? No, absolutely. The BHA, the Jockey Club, they've done a great job. They've um, made big publicity of, of what I did. Um, and now, I mean, like I said before, jockeys can't go out drinking because they can't go out partying. They've got to ride seven days a week. It's totally, totally changed. Um, the integrity of British horse racing is very important. And I would have said that that in the sport now is it's just absolutely different class. Do you still see yourself as a victim? No, not really. I mean, I totally understand what I've done, but my main problem is trying to apologise and rebuild my reputation. So, in an ideal world, if you came back here in two years' time, what would have happened? If you could envisage the perfect scenario for Graham Bradley, what would it be? I would love to just get an official position in racing. I've been offered an assistant trainer's job by a, a gentleman I've rode a million winners for. He's an absolute super-sized trainer. Lots of winners on the flat group ones, and he's won Gold Cups, Grand Nationals. I would love to help him out. This is David Ellsworth. David Ellsworth, absolutely. I'd love to help him out and go and go racing with him, buy and sell horses, and go to the sales. He's bought. He's, I mean, he's just absolutely incredible. Um, and that would help sort of rebuild my reputation, rebuild my career. So something like that would be would be fabulous. Luck on Sunday. Proudly sponsored by Albasti Equiwell, Dubai. So I hope you enjoyed this week's Luck on Sunday podcast. The next edition of the show will take place, of course, next Sunday 
at nine o'clock when my guests will include David Yates from the Daily Mirror, uh, the Irish former jockey and now journalist and TV commentator Jane Mangan, and David Redvers, the racing manager to Sheikh Farhad's Kipco organisation. And of course, that will be off the back of their sponsored British Champions Day. So lots to look forward to next week. In addition to the above named, oh yes, chap called Paul Nichols. That's the lineup next week. I'm sure you'll join me then. And if you can't, make sure you download the podcast on a weekly basis. It'll be available on iTunes every Sunday from mid-afternoon. So do subscribe. on Sunday. Proudly sponsored by Albasti Equiwell Dubai.